When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast and what is our penultimate episode of the 2022-23 regular domestic season. Uh, on this podcast, we will be previewing the Champions League final between Manchester City and Inter, which is on Saturday night. But before then, we have something a little more broad, dare I say, a little more philosophical. I'm with Michael Cox, with Mark Carey and with Liam Tharm from The Athletic. And uh, Liam's going to kind of lead today's discussion. We're giving you the Tharm band. And... <laughs> Something you've been thinking about and writing about, in fact, over the last couple of weeks, Liam, ahead of the final, thinking about knockout football, thinking about league football, thinking about the differences between the two. Yeah, it's something I've thought more about, I think, off the back of the World Cup from sort of watching some of those games, particularly seeing Spain struggle there. I think the Brazil-Croatia game comes to mind as well. Um, and sort of having these these dominant or more expansive sides and the ways that they play. And of course, having seen Manchester City struggle um, in the Champions League over the past few seasons and now do really, really well. Um, they sort of say, look, what does it take to sort of win in, in the league, often in the Premier League specifically? And what does it take to be a successful cup side, particularly in, in the Champions League? And almost the case of... Do we need to start viewing them as, as separate disciplines? I think cricket was the, the best sort of uh, comparable sport I could think of for this between sort of 2020 cricket, ODI and test cricket, where, OK, the distinctions are clearer because there's uh, differences in the formats, number of overs, you know, fielding restrictions, power plays. But to say, look, when they view it, it's very different. It's different players for different formats, different styles and approaches work more successfully in, in one um, form than another and say, look, do we need to sort of review what makes a good cup team versus a good league team? Michael, this is the, the sort of thing that you've done quite a lot of thinking and writing about as well. Like my mind goes back to various major tournament previews on the international stage where you're always very keen to point out, don't expect these teams, even the favourites, to look like the top club teams because there is so much difference between the preparation and even in terms of the, the football itself that we see in major international tournaments. And what about on the club side? Do you think there's also quite a large distinction between um, knockout style competitions and, and league competition yeah I think there is um I feel like this was maybe something people used to speak about a little bit more in the 1990s when there was less inequality I think that has changed things because I think these days basically if you're a good league side you have a strong advantage over everyone else in the cups as well but I certainly remember in the 1990s there was a thing that Manchester United were a great league side but Arsenal, who were much more defensive under George Graham, were a good cup side. So they were the first side to win the domestic cup double in 93. They got they won the cup winners' cup the following year, 94, and then got to the final of that again in 95. So, yeah, I think it, it probably always has been a bit of a thing. It, I mean, it was an interesting article from, from Liam. I think the comparison to cricket is quite good. I mean, that is significantly more different between tests and T20 and one dayers. But I think the, the principle is, is quite a good, good thing to look at. 
And I think the fundamental thread running through this is that in the Premier League, title winners have got better or won more points. Um, it was 83 points, uh, the average from the title winner uh, in the first nine seasons of the, of the PL as a, as a 20 team um, division. That's up to 94 over the past seven seasons. So you've had 98, 99, 100 point winning um, seasons. But it was the, the principle that in, in a cup competition, it's going to be 13 games that you have to you know, get out of a group stage of, of six games. Of course, that's going to change, but it's get out the group and then it's don't lose, don't get knocked out consecutively in these rounds and then win a one-off final. It's just, it's completely different as a uh, as a type of format to be successful in. And to Michael's point about growing inequality, I guess, uh, at the top of the of the club game. I mean, Charlie Eccleshare tweet from an hour ago off the back of West Ham winning the Europa Conference League sprung to mind immediately saying, I think the part of the reason that West Ham's success feels so unfamiliar is because of how unusual it's become for any non-Big Six team to win something in the last 10 years. In other words, the last 30 Premier League, FA Cup and League Cup titles. Only Leicester have done it, which is kind of sad, says Charlie, but I think probably has relevance here, right? Actually, the teams that are winning these cup competitions are generally also very good league team. So, you know, you're having to be almost more marginal in trying to work out those that are thriving just a little bit more in league competition or a little bit more in cup competition and why. Yeah, I mean, the FA Cup has a reputation of this competition that throws up great surprises, but it hasn't been the case over the last 25 years or so. It's only been Wigan and Portsmouth and Leicester who have really bucked the trend. Otherwise, it's been the big clubs who competing for the Premier League winning it that certainly wasn't the case if you go back to the 80s for example we had Coventry winning it or Wimbledon winning it so yeah the inequality has changed things a lot so broad brushstroke here Liam some of this may be obvious but I think it's good to set the tone what is in your eyes different in league competition versus knockout competition when you're talking about the way that you play the game the way that you win I think the defence first part really sort of um, comes into the, the fore that teams need to have a good defensive base because you're trying to keep goals conceded to a minimum because that is what is going to get you knocked out of games that we hear coaches and managers now speak about results and performance as these separate things that you know you can go through a 38 game season you can play well often that's tied to things like what your shot count is your XG in the game and say oh okay you know we felt that this was a sustainable performance do this every week we'll be where we want to be in the table but that doesn't matter to a big degree. Mark and I were sort of having these discussions about then looking at it through the data lens of saying, okay, you've got these really good advanced sort of predictive metrics, things like expected goals, but we haven't got the time in a, in a cup competition to regress to any sort of mean. Um, game state plays a big role as well, because if you're ahead or you're behind, that's going to change things. But there's simply not, not the time available for a team over even a 180 minute tie to you know have enough chances to regress based on those underlying numbers. So the point I think I was trying to make within the piece was we maybe need to not lean on the data too heavily. And I'd, I'd like Mark's opinion on this because we then get these sort of model breaking teams, if you like, like Real Madrid, maybe severe to a degree, even West Ham when you look at their attack compared to Fiorentina. Um, it doesn't matter as much because what happens in the boxes is a lot more important than what happens between the boxes. Yeah, I think across the, the course of a, a league season, domestic league season, the, the best team will often be the one to, to, to win the league, right? But it's not necessarily the best team who, who will win a, a cup competition. Despite, I, I know what you guys have just said, I do appreciate that, but it's not always the case maybe in a, a final where you could have a, a bit of an upset. And I think that, again, Liam and I, yeah, have, have spoken about it. I, so I basically, I come from a research background. So I run used to run a lot of experiments and, and perform a lot of statistical analysis. And I think that, this analogy sort of holds through in terms of the the league season being as representative as it can be of what the team is going to be like. And as I say, it's not necessarily the case for a, a cup competition. So if, for example, you were to have a, a sample of five males and get them all to, to 
run as fast as they can and measure their average sprint speed. If you were to then infer that the average sprint speed for all males is based on that sample of five people, then that's not going to be as representative as if you were to experiment with 5,000 males and then infer conclusions um, from there. So I think it's just the importance, as we've said before, about sample size um, and why, from a statistical perspective, that is the case. So if you have one season's worth of data, you're far more likely to draw reliable conclusions as to who the, the best team is than compared with 13 games across the course of a Champions League season. Yeah, it was a case of sort of flipping the perceptions. In the Champions League last season, Karim Benzema was top scorer. And based on XG data, uh, Thibaut Courtois prevented the most goals of any goalkeeper, which over a 38-game league season or, or sort of longer isn't really sustainable because you're asking a lot. But as someone who sort of has a lot of involvement in athletics, the idea of sort of having these personal bests or peaking for specific parts of the season, we don't really talk about in football, the idea that you can come alive in these final three, four games of a season where you need it to matter. Um, I think the point I was trying to make was really just that should be celebrated more and we should be like, that's okay, that's fine. Obviously, when you look at it, these same teams are playing in a league and say, okay, you can't do that for 38 games because you just can't ask Thibaut Courtois to make nine saves every week. That's not um, sustainable. But to go, to not then overwrite it or overlook it and say, Liverpool should have won really. Well, no, because it's a one-off game. And this will be what I think we come to when we talk about Inter and, and City that that then still holds there. It's a one-game thing. It's a one-off. It doesn't need to be anything more than that. It doesn't need to be a case of, well, they can't do this 38 times a season. They don't need to. They need to do it once, and that's it. I mean, I wonder whether the difference in the, the remit of the, the cup competitions versus the domestic league season, I wonder how much the manager types kind of play into this as, as well. So you think of managers who have certain philosophies like Pep Guardiola, Roberto De Zerbi, we've spoken a lot, uh, this this season, Jurgen Klopp, etc. They have a clear identity of the way that they want to play and impose themselves on the opposition. And across the course of a league season, they often, uh, their teams do that more often than not. Whereas it's sort of a more reactive or pragmatic might be a better word to, to use, like a, a Jose Mourinho, a Carlo Ancelotti, a Unai Emery, especially in, in cup competitions. They look to try and nullify the strengths of the opposition first and foremost. And then if they can impose themselves on the, the game and of course the competition as well, then then maybe they can. So I think that there's a definite difference in the, the remit of the manager type of who maybe thrives within a, a domestic league and those who thrive in a, domestic, in a cup competition. I think it's quite funny that the manager of the last decade that I would say would be most suited to knockout competitions would be Diego Simeone. And he's actually won two leagues, but not won the Champions League, albeit very small margins, got to two finals, lost one of them on penalties. But I remember in 2014, when they came from nowhere to be competing, I was convinced they would win the Champions League, but fall short in the league because they just have a couple of games that they didn't score. But it turned out to be the complete opposite of that. Do you take where I think Mark was kind of leading us to water, do you take that to be true in your eyes this idea that perhaps a more reactive or more open to being reactive um, general strategy as a manager lends itself more to winning cup competitions where it's a one-off game and luck plays a part and defending your goal is possibly more important than scoring at the other end versus a more proactive approach which probably over a 38 game season where the title winners are racking up 100 points probably lends itself more to actually winning points in, in, in big numbers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there used to be a, back in the day, there used to be a general philosophy that if you won your home games and drew your away games, you'd be all right. You'd probably be winning the league. You can't do that now. You've got to win, what, 30 plus league games uh, to stand a chance of winning the title most seasons. So again, that the inequality comes into it. You can't afford to not win. 
That's it's completely true. I think City, ironically, have followed that win at home, uh, draw away in the Champions League this season, and that's been um, their best defensive campaign in the Champions League, or, or their joint fewest goals conceded, along with 2020-21 when they got to the final against Chelsea and, and of course, lost. Um, and that's something that Michael wrote a really good piece on this about how Guardiola's embraced the sort of physicality and. Um, it's basically just got a, a back line of, of sort of four real solid defenders. Um, the press has become really good. I think we've spoken before about in some of the, the Champions League recaps that he's gone to this 4-2-4 press at times where he's put the wingers up, but it's not a particularly fancy or um, particularly extravagant or detailed sort of shape that he's got. It's it's a 4-4-2 mid-block. Loads of teams do that. Arsenal have done it really well this season as well, but it's a case of we, we analyse in real great detail these rotations and how players move into different parts of the pitch, how there's these extravagant passing sequences and at times having a real solid defensive base. And maybe it's because it's almost too simple at times. It's too straightforward to analyse and say, oh, well, they're just... They're just solid defensively. There's, um, you know, there's not sort of layers to it. They're they're going to shuffle sideways. You know, when the, when the ball goes one way, they're going to block passing lanes. The keeper's going to make saves. They're going to make clearances. That needs to be good enough. There's a great quote from Jose Mourinho um, where he says about uh, the Champions League isn't the result of a great work. And I thought that's incredible because if anyone is going to defend knockout football, <laughs> I'd, I'd have thought it would be him. Um, and he says that you know you can win it in the worst season. There's a big amount of unpredictability. You can't do anything to make your team win it. You just have to make them better. Yeah, his Chelsea sides were probably better than the Porto side and the Inter side that won the Champions League. That's uh, it. Kind of probably says something about his own. Uh, well, they were certainly better than the Chelsea sides that won the Champions League uh, in 2012 and 2021 uh, in terms of their league performance. Definitely 2012. I think 21's a bit harsh. I think they're a really good side in 21. Well, I mean, there was a managerial change halfway through the season, so where the team were performing pretty poorly. So I, I guess I was talking more broadly about that season. True. But I take your point that uh, once old Tommy Tactics got his teeth into them, they were a pretty strong side in those knockout competitions. Uh, in terms of going back and analysing the cup winners of the Champions League, of the, Euro the Europa League, even of the World Cup, I guess, to bring international football into it, although there may be differences between the international game and the club game. Uh, can we say... It, looking at the trends, what matters more in cup competition than league competition and vice versa? Clean sheets. I mean, you look through the the winners of major tournaments, particularly the World Cup and the Euros, often it's teams who don't have a prolific striker, don't score many goals, but they just keep clean sheets and they can get a goal from this source, that source, centre-backs, set pieces or lucky goals. But yeah, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but if you don't... If you don't concede a goal, you won't get knocked out unless you then lose on penalties. So clean sheets are just so important in, in international tournaments with no nils aren't going to help you much uh, in terms of winning the league. You don't need to be a perfect side. I was looking through and uh, Bayern are the only team in Champions League history to win it with um, you know, wins all the way through. And even that has an asterisk by it because that was the, the COVID season. So they played uh, slightly fewer games, single leg knockouts behind closed doors. So there's arguably elements of that that from a, a statistical testing perspective, you know, wasn't quite a, a fair test in that regard. But I think the stat is correct in that if City win, they'll become only the fourth team in the current format of the Champions League to win it going unbeaten, which is quite incredible to think, you know, how often you don't need to even be that perfect. You can lose games along the way. I think having the capacity to have big comebacks is really important. You don't always need to go ahead in games and see them out and control them. You need that big um, sort of result from when you, you come from behind. I think we saw that with Real Madrid a lot um, in, in previous seasons. So 
I think that is just massively at odds with the fact that it's getting tougher and harder and needing to be more perfect in league football to say, no, you still don't need to be that outstanding. And I remember reading Michael's piece on sort of World Cup winners um, but before the tournament and Argentina sort of following all of those trends from absolute T. They went through the Copa America, I think two summers ago, and conceded three goals and won 1-0 twice in the group stages, needed pens to get through uh, the quarter or the semi-final and won 1-0 in the final. And it was like, it just feels so, so different. And it's almost like, a lot of cognitive dissonance, to be honest, where you're sort of saying that these are real sort of competing ideas, clashing ideas, but the more you look through the data, these trends just feel really, really clear. And then that thing that's very hard to measure and I think quite hard to predict, which is probably more on the psychological side, is this idea of being able to cope with poor performance levels, but still be able to, to win. I mean, Michael's preview of the World Cup, as you say, kind of... The, the trends of the analysis of previous winners included being quite poor in the group stage, right? And Argentina's first game of the World Cup was a 2-1 defeat to Saudi Arabia. There has to be this strength internally to handle both poor results like that when there's still time to go in the tournament and you can still take a deep breath and, and crack on and overcome. But also within games, and I guess this is more tactical, if you have a plan A and it isn't going to plan or if you go behind and your plan A for one of a better phrase, isn't working so well. It's not necessarily sticking a big man up top and having a plan B, which has often been spoken about. It's more, can you handle the, the pressure of that? Can you work through that? Or are you going to be losing your composure, which can obviously massively harm performance in a one-off game? Yeah, it's funny. I think the thing with losing your first game, as happened with Argentina, happened with Spain in 2010... Portugal 2004 lost their first game and then got to the final. They weirdly lost to the team who'd beaten them in, in the first game, so maybe that didn't help. But if you do lose your first game, you are immediately put into the kind of knockout phase of mind because your second game pretty much is a knockout. If you lose it, you're almost guaranteed to be out. So, I mean, you wouldn't want to risk it. You wouldn't say, let's, let's chuck a first game so we get the right mentality. But I do think sometimes teams can go through an easy group stage. Maybe not the right mentality. Obviously, in terms of fitness, you save, you save your legs for the knockout stage. But yeah, I think you do want a bit of a test in the group stage. Maybe you do want some adversity to overcome at some point. It's like smelling salts. Just kind of wakes you up a bit. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I don't know if there's too much read into it, but I was going through some of the, the recent, I think over the last 10 seasons, Champions League and Europa League winners, and none of the teams were at the younger end in terms of average age, which of course isn't a perfect representation of, of the squad, but I feel like it might lend itself slightly more to more experienced players, particularly as you're saying, and um, in terms of being able to respond to, to failure or to defeats that older players just would have been through the game more, you know, might have more... I don't want to say resilience, but just experience of those things so that they're more okay with dealing with it. They've got past experience. They know how to respond. Um, and some of the, the finalists, at least in the major European competitions um, in recent seasons, have been slightly older teams, the older players, which I guess also maybe lends itself to, I presume, sort of finals and semifinals being at times I think a bit... I feel like the, the running stats come up quite high, but the intensity never feels ridiculous all the time. It doesn't feel like you get... I think back to that, that City-Arsenal game, for instance, in, in the league earlier this season, where it was just everything was going back and forth and back and forth. But in final, sometimes it can be a bit cagey, a bit slower, and take something to really sort of break a game open. And when you're comparing that, just as you did there, obviously, with, with league and, and cup, I think that it's not carrying through maybe a bad performance into the next one, because it's all about thresholds when you're talking about getting through the group stage in a World Cup or a Champions League group where you could have a really poor goal difference, for example, but you still might finish second or obviously first in the league. That means nothing for then when you're in the knockout phase. Whereas if it were the league, then you maybe think, well, this goal difference is maybe going to play into the difference between a, a Champions League spot or not, or whatever it may be. But it's just simply thresholds 
of get past the, the last 16. However we scrape through, it's a completely you know, blank slate for the next one. Whereas in a league, it's it's carrying through from the, the previous uh, previous week, previous game. So it's just another reason of just how much it contrasts. And although it's a bit of an enemy of in-depth tactical analysis, I think we probably should at least say the word luck here, um, Mark. Uh, I'm coming to you because when you talk about small sample size, I often feel like an, an, another part of a similar discussion comes down to the presence and importance of luck within a low-scoring sport such as football. And it stands to reason that in knockout football, uh, luck would have a bigger impact on the, the results and the title winners than it would uh, in the league. But it's difficult, isn't it? Because how do you dish out the, uh, the role of luck in a, a title win or in a, in a certain success or a certain failure versus the actual tangible reasons of poor strategy or poor performance. Yeah, and it's very, very hard to quantify. And I think when a, a team does win a, a title, whether it's cup or domestic, that they you fit a narrative to how you want to fit the narrative, but luck is always going to be a part of it. And I know that managers say this as well, but I was thinking about this in recent seasons, in the Champions League at least, that that Divock Origi goal against Barcelona, he could have absolutely skied that. It was a first-time effort and it just happened to go in the, the top corner. That then helps Liverpool into the, the Champions League final and they win as a consequence. Kevin De Bruyne as well in um, the Champions League final against Chelsea, he had a really nasty whack to the face and he had to come off after an hour. And when City are chasing the game, you think that that was a bit of bad luck on their part that if you'd have had one of your best players on the field then maybe things could have been different so there's just so many kind of diverging moments um, butterfly effects etc sliding doors moments that you just think had that been different then it would have been maybe a different name on the title there were really interesting quotes last night from Vincenzo Italiano, the Fiorentina head coach, after obviously they lost to West Ham. And he said, we started with the starting 11 that gave us the right balance as we allowed barely anything from West Ham. We played the way you need to play a final, running few risks and controlling the game, which I disagree with on a small part of it in the sense that there were quite a few turnovers that had West Ham have counterattacked more effectively, more efficiently. They would have definitely got through, but they didn't really adapt their game plan the entire time. They were sort of building out into these sort of wide areas. West Ham were really, really good at wide, had the wingers deep and knew that Fiorentina were a side that scored lots of goals, but do it quite regularly through sort of crosses and from these wide areas and making these overloads. They play with some really nice rotations for Fiorentina. It's really sort of stylish to watch, really attractive. But this is the second final that they've lost now. Um, they lost to Inter also 2-1. And two teams that play sort of more similar ways. Shapes are a bit different, but again, two not sort of ball-dominant teams. And just feel like we're seeing more and more trends of that. And I, I worry now that I might be outcome-biased against it. And I'm now looking for those teams that are doing it in the way to fit this theory that I've got. But... Um, just, yeah, these teams that have more of the ball that can be affected, but they didn't really adapt their game plan at all. Um, West Ham exposed the high line for, for two of the goals, one with a really good throw in over the top, and one with a really, really good incisive pass from Lucas Paqueta to, to Jared Bowen. So again, it comes down to moments. If Jared Bowen goes one-on-one -on -one and he misses it or the keeper saves it, of course, they don't then lift the trophy. But I've written a piece today that was interesting that the wingers doing such good deep defending in wide areas and sort of basically stopping Fiorentina's strength meant that by the 90th minute, they could go on and win the game like that because they hadn't conceded the goals, they'd stayed in the game. Yeah, it's funny. I think outcome bias in football is probably strongest for finals because I think once you see one team celebrating with the trophy and all the interviews with the players, you just assume everything went well. <laughs> but like some of the analysis after the game last night it was like, oh, really good decision by Moyes to play. Emerson instead of Cresswell because he's more attacking but I don't think Emerson offered that much going forward and he was probably responsible for the goal they conceded I actually feel a bit sorry for Fiorentina because I think they probably marginally the better side last night I would say 
I think in the copper telephone, it's into the pretty good as well. But I do appreciate they're a bit too open, I think. And, and I think their defenders are kind of technical rather than defenders first and foremost. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We've had the Europa League final, which was won on penalties by Sevilla against Roma after a one-all draw. We've had the Europa Conference League final won by West Ham 2-1 against Fiorentina. And now it's time to preview the European football showpiece. And that is Manchester City against Inter in the Champions League final on Saturday night. Uh, as a way of, of bridging the gap between the two discussions, Liam, uh, you've done a lot of uh, a, a lot on the subject that we just discussed. Where do Manchester City sit in this discussion? Feels like historically they fit into the sort of team that have been fantastic in league football, but have struggled a little in knockout football. But really, the, it doesn't necessarily stand up to scrutiny because while they haven't won a Champions League title, they've won a ton of domestic knockout titles. So, yeah, where are we at with, with City and, and this question? I think they're more a cup team now than they've ever been, I think, in terms of success and in terms of sort of style as well. Um, I think, as we, we mentioned earlier on in the pod, that their defence has got an awful lot better down to sort of the, the personnel that they've brought in. Um, I think that's interesting as well when you consider the problems they had at the start of the season with, with adapting with Haaland and, and, you know, at times being more of a transitional side. But there were fascinating quotes from um, Bernardo after the second leg against Bayern, I think, where he said that, that in previous seasons we'd have felt we need to dominate the ball all the time and, um, you know, control the game and have possession and have territory but now we're sort of content to, to sit off a bit um, I'm intrigued to see how they approach the game because obviously their style has very much been let's control the game away from home and just completely smash teams to bits at the Etihad it's been quite impressive that you know they've won I think it's 3-0 4-0 and 7-0 in their sort of their, their home game so they obviously can't do that specific thing because it's obviously a neutral venue, but I think there's a real sort of strength to, to doing that. And they've blended it really well with the fact that they've shown in the Premier League over seasons and seasons they can be ruthless in these one-off games, particularly against weaker opposition and, and really you know blow teams out the water. But I think if any team is going to come and frustrate them, it's going to be Inter. As Michael wrote about in his piece, it was really good about Brentford being the team that have done the most damage to City this season. And if I was going to compare Inter to any team... Um, they're very similar to Brentford, who, of course, of course, City uh, problems in, in both fixtures this season. I think the only teams to do the double over them in terms of sort of shape and style and approach. So it's clearly something that they have had struggles against and, and might well do once more. Michael, your recent piece on Pep Guardiola and the concept of him overthinking things when things have not gone Manchester City's way uh, seemed to, to be along the similar lines of where Liam is, is taking us, which is that Man City may have cracked both being a league team and a knockout team. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, different 
style of uh, defending, I think, in particular. Proper defenders, old school defenders. I went through all Pep Guardiola's Champions League campaigns and kind of investigated this overthinking thing, which I think is probably a bit overstated. I don't think it's been a, a massive factor in some of their Champions League exits. But I think there's one campaign where they went out, or his side went out, because he didn't think it enough. He kind of underthought it. And that was in 2010 against Inter Milan. And that was when he was with Barcelona. He had Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He played Ibrahimovic up front. And I thought that really played into the hands of Lucio and Walter Samuel, who were really kind of old school, immobile centre-backs. They played with Ibrahimovic, or certainly uh, Samuel had played against him. They could engage in physical battles. What they didn't want was if Guardiola had gone with a false nine and lots of quick players running around them. And I was surprised he did that. He made, in my opinion, I remember saying this at the time, he made that mistake in both games. This is a game where, again, he's going to play with a classic number nine. There's absolutely no chance he can leave Erling Haaland out. And of course, Haaland in the form that he's in, no one wants to be playing against him. But I do wonder with these inter centre-backs whether they'll just be happy there's someone there to play up against. I think if Guardiola did do something more adventurous, you know, in a previous campaign where he had licence to leave out Aguero or Gabriel Jesus, maybe they would struggle a little bit more with that. But with Haaland, with the goals he scored this season, of course he's going to start. Of course he's going to start as number nine. The picture you're painting is of into defenders both of yesteryear and the current crop sort of being elephants that are scared of mice like running around their feet they don't, they don't trust them can't get near them um, so that's a good analogy thank you <laughs> well i mean this i was going to agree with, with michael in that regard where i think there's less margin for for guardiola to overthink maybe more in personnel than than tactics that might change but because to your point he's, he's going to play harland um and then you sort of have to kind of work back from there because where previously he could have had different players maybe playing the false nine role in in a couple of seasons gone by for manchester city you know that obviously edison's going to be in goal you're going to have walker diaz akanji stones then going into uh, midfield from defense you're going to have rodri you're going to have gundogan and, and kevin de bruyne Grealish on the left Bernardo on the right and Haaland up front. I'd be very surprised if that wasn't the case in terms of overthinking personnel because that has been what in the second half of the season what's got him and got what's got Manchester City on such a strong winning run. So if it weren't for Haaland, then you'd maybe debate whether you could overthink it again. But because you have to have that fixed number nine, <laughs> I'm probably going to regret saying that because he may come up with something. But it's very, very likely that Haaland's going to be there. And then as a consequence, as a domino effect, everything else is going to um, be fixed in place. Liam Inter are clearly also cup specialists or in that mould this season. They've won the Supercoppa Italiana. They won the... Coppa Italia, uh, but Man City are, are heavy favourites here, and possibly the heaviest of all the favourites of, of Champions League uh, final history. I, I should, but I haven't gone back and checked historic odds here. But most models, betting models, predictive models, whatever it might be, have City as favourites, somewhere between 70 and 80% favourites to lift the, the trophy, which is unusual for a game uh, of this magnitude. Um, after what we've discussed in the last half an hour, do you, do you think that maybe it goes too far one way because these models are so often based on underlying performance data and, and things of that ilk? Yeah, to a degree. Um, I probably wouldn't put it quite that high, I think personally from a tactical perspective, but it's definitely got to be majority in City's favour. They've um, been the most effective team that I've seen this season at 
I think winning a variety of different games. The Arsenal game really stood out at the Emirates for winning a game in quite a difficult um, circumstance and in, in a difficult position. And that's not the sort of you know performance and result I think that we've seen them do too much in the past. Um, but I think the longer it goes on, if it stays goalless and the more Inter can frustrate City and make them play expansively, commit bodies forward um, and possibly overcommit and, and leave space to exploit in transition or um, just, just make errors and, you know, I think City benefited massively from going one nil up early against against Man United in, in the FA Cup final. Um, obviously, can't quite see anything happening too early, um, dare, dare I say, in this game. But they were the same against Milan in the first leg of the semi-final where they came flying up the traps into. They were fantastic. Even at 2-0 up, I think it was inside 11 or 12 minutes, they were still dominating, pushing Milan. They weren't scoring. We'll sit back completely deep. Sure, they're not a high-possession team, but it's it's not going to be a 1-0 lead if they get it and sit back and sort of defend crosses for, for 90 minutes. Crosses are particularly apt when it comes to Inter Milan. It's a, a regular avenue of attack for them in their 3-5-2 system under Simone Inzaghi. Uh, two up top, Michael, that's where you've kind of been focusing on uh, in your preview for this one. Inter's front two, or two of three really, isn't it? Yeah, Martinez will definitely start. The question is whether it's Dzeko or Lukaku. I think it might be Lukaku. What are the questions that Inzaghi will have to be asking himself to land at, at Lukaku or Dzeko? What do they offer that's different? Well, it's complex. I mean, obviously, very different players. Dzeko better, better in the air, better receiving the ball to feet, I think, in general. But I just think because they're going to play on the counter-attack so extensively, I think I'd go for the pace of Lukaku. I think almost any other opposition would go for Dzeko because I think he's played better. I think he has a better relationship with Martinez. He's scored some really big goals in this Champions League run as well. But I think maybe just Lukaku's forward running could mean he gets the nod. But on a wider level, I think it's interesting because... Uh, Simone Inzaghi is very rare, or pretty rare, as a former striker who's coaching a Champions League finalist. These are the first ones that's Jupp Heinks in 2013. Before that, before Heinks, it was Sir Alex Ferguson. And we're talking about players who retired in the 70s there. So it's quite a different era. And of course, he's very rare as a, a manager who almost always uses two strikers. Um, a little bit different at Lazio. He used uh, uh, probably... 3-5-1-1 rather than 3-5-2 so it wasn't two proper strikers but Inter is purely been two up front and just watching some of the goals they've scored this season I do think sometimes opponents just don't know how to play against two strikers like, two really good strikers and they have I mean regardless of the combination they've got good relationships between the strikers when they play up directly from defence they play one twos really quickly to get in behind when the ball is wide there's always one who makes a near post run and one kind of peels off and I think defenders struggle to cope with that kind of double movement so I mean that might cause issues obviously the caveat to this is City are now almost playing four centre-backs across the back four and Rodri in front who's a guy who played centre-back at the World Cup for Spain so you've almost got five centre-backs there at times Kyle Walker might play a different case but the theory stands City should be quite well equipped to deal with this other sides have struggled I think one of the biggest things I'd stress with the front two as well is that it can be very easy to profile them as, as a big man, little man. I think we've spoken about this on the pod before that Letaro's back to goal game is fantastic. It's really good. And at times I feel like he's almost harder to defend for a bigger centre-back than what a smaller one might be because if you've got that that sort of uh, physical dominance that, you know, you put too much pressure on him, you, you're too heavy with the contact, you're going to end up knocking him over or, you know, just from a referee's perspective, I guess, it's, they look easier to foul than someone that you can, you know, really grapple with, um, sort of Lukaku. So I think the fluidity will be hard to defend I you know imagine that the selection headache might be do you need sort of the pace of, of Carl Walker in that back line you know do, do you want more sort of 1v1 defenders someone like Nathan Ake in there how do you sort of you know I think 
the selection headache of Guardiola has got when he's going to be deeper down the pitch, which is ironic because I don't think we've ever really talking about that in, in terms of him in a, in a final before. But uh, Lataro's knockout record is, is really, really good in terms of goals scored. Um, if you go back over the past few seasons at, at Inter, the fact he wears the captain's armband, I think, is, is quite telling at that big a club at, at that age. But uh, scored in both finals this season in the Super Cup and the Italian Cup, uh, scored in the Champions League semi-final uh, against Milan in the second leg and in the quarterfinal against Benfica, um, scored in the Super Cup final uh, two seasons ago against Juventus as well there's Italian Cup semi-finals he scored in Europa League semi-finals he just he turns up on the big occasion um, as we were saying that psychology part of it that we almost can't look at too much tactically he just scores goals in, in big games yeah it feels like for teams who do play two up front now as a matter of course you're more likely to have a big man big man combination <laughs> I feel a bit bad for the little man of the big man little man combos of, of the 90s in particular but I don't really see why they would be necessary or whether having two big men who can both disrupt defenders physically and both receive the ball with back to goal rather than it being a bit more of an obvious one does one thing one does the other thing I mean I think most specifically of uh, the newest Premier League team for next season Luton Town who play with Elijah Adebayo and Carlton Morris up front who are big man big man both of them equally comfortable receiving uh, long balls forward and it makes them to my eyes more difficult to play against so I think that's kind of an interesting thing and unfortunate for the shorter men. Just a quick one on the front too. Is there a case to be made that it could be an issue out of possession for Inter Milan? I'd be interested to know if you can think of any examples of teams playing against City this season with a front two. There aren't loads in the Premier League. Brentford spring to mind with Etonian and Bermo. But I guess in my head, if those two are going to be no doubt blocking central passing lanes, um, having those two central attacking players with also three centre midfield players and the three centre backs. My concern for Inter is that City are are so good in build-up and so good at problem solving that they will relish potentially the extra space or fewer markers out wide. Whereas we know for years they've been combining, creating overloads in those wide areas is something that they really do thrive in. That That's just a concern of mine that, that I think of when I think of a front two who are mobile but not unbelievably so yeah I think it's more of a, a back eight in the sense of you've got the five and the three um, not that they're completely deep but sort of a, a defensive unit that the front two um, at times will stay high because they're the outlet in transition so I think that will be a worry for Guardiola in the sense of sure City can get their overloads out wide when you know De Bruyne pulls out to the right and that will be an issue because the wing backs are going to get pinned really deep for Inter they, they do it a lot but that won't be able to be sort of an outball in terms of getting the wing back on the overlap early. They're going to have to go into one of the, one of the strikers first. But I wonder if City will be a bit more conservative in the pure number of bodies they commit forward. He might want a bit more cover, say leave three or four back, uh, maybe the back three plus say one of the, the pivot players, one of the box players, because it's just a real sort of game of, of risk and reward. And it's sort of interesting because I feel like we've got quite a clear idea of how the game's going to pan out tactically. It's just a case of which parts of the approach are effective and that will lead to goals being scored or goals being conceded. It's sort of, I could be completely wrong and it go a completely different way, but it feels like we sort of know, we can picture in our heads what the, the patterns will look like, what the play will look like um, because they're so specific and, and so different. But yeah, it's, I, I, I'd be in, Amazed to be honest. Um, I agree with Michael's point about Lukaku sort of being being an option for this, but he's gone with Jekyll and Latara, I think the entire tournament is the starters. I'd be surprised if Inzaghi deviates from this. Just he feels so wedded to that system. Those wing backs will be important, uh, Mark, for Inter. Always are in a system like this. Just touching on some Inter players to to look out for that could have an impact, positive or negative, depending on how they perform in the final. Um, that the wing backs 
as is often the case these days, uh, slightly different roles, slightly different profiles, but very important. Yeah, well, DeMarco, we spoke, I think, before on this podcast about the, the role of DeMarco, far more of a, a ball-to-feet to wing-back, but far more involved on, on the left-hand side, and that's shown in the numbers. So 38% of Inter Milan's attacking touches have been down the, the left channel in the Champions League this season, which is notably more than their central and, and right third. Um, and DeMarco has five assists, which is more than anyone in Inter Milan's Champions League season um, so far. 12 open-play chances created, which is also uh, the most in the squad. So there's quite a lot of creativity coming down the, the left-hand side but then Denzel Dumfries on the, the right-hand side is a bit more of a stronger off-ball runner he's more likely to arrive sometimes at the back post very good uh, aerially rather than um, necessarily being the one to to create and, and be the one to, to whip the ball in but his athleticism is going to be key as well in terms of defensively and you know from an attacking perspective so um, I think there'll be a lot going down down his side in both ways. Just to the side of um, DeMarco is Alessandro Bastoni, who is one of my favourite centre-backs to watch. He's the outside centre-back in, in the three on the left. He's really tall, so he just looks like a real sort of natural box defender, but loves getting forward, often on the overlap, sort of Sheffield United style for anyone that watched, watched them in the Premier League. Um, there's a goal, I think it might be one in the group stage, where he ends up uh, assisting it from almost inside the penalty area. It's a cutback because he plays a 1-2 with DeMarco and ends up overlapping. But yeah, he's assisted Nicola Barea twice, who's the central midfielder, often makes these really good sort of runs from deep. And there's a goal in the in the knockout round against Benfica um, across to the back post for sort of a header and a very similar goal uh, against Barcelona in the group stage. So they're very specific in how they attack, but there are different sort of ways and different combinations that Inter can, can hurt teams. So there are still a lot of things for City to do defensively to defend as Michael sort of said they, they pack the box really well Jekyll and Lotaro often make very good different runs if you've then got Dumfries sort of attacking the back post and Barea also making a run into the box that is four or five to defend now that only takes one player to switch off and, and not mark someone and, and that, that will be a goal we saw it in the uh, the second goal in, in the first leg of the game against Milan where Milan ended up having all their defenders marking an inter player and uh, I think it was Chahanoglu who got the ball and just walked through the midfield and, and, put, and put the ball in the corner so yeah it, it can happen Right, well, I think we're all set for the Champions League final on Saturday night between Manchester City and Inter. It feels like a lot of the discussions this season that we've had, particularly about City, but also about uh, Inter and other teams in Italian football, have led to this final. We will be doing a tactical review of the game almost as soon as the final whistle blows. So uh, that'll be our last podcast of the 22-23 season. We hope that you'll join us then. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed so that you can get the episode as soon as it lands or have it ready for Sunday morning first thing. And in the meantime, sign up to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Tons and tons of the best Champions League final preview content that you will find on the World Wide Web on The Athletic. Sign up today uh, with a discount for your annual subscription at theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Thank you to Mark, to Michael and to Liam for yeah a, a duo of really interesting topics today. And thank you for listening to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.